This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The hosts are not trained professionals, and their opinions come solely from personal experience. In this episode, we discuss fictional depictions of trauma and violence that may not be suitable for all audiences. Please take care of yourselves. Specific content warnings for each episode can be found in the show notes. Events in the media are discussed in approximate order of escalation. This episode contains spoilers. This week on Books That Burn, we are discussing Battle Magic by Tamara Pierce, where Briar, Evie, and Rosethorn fight to survive the war that threatens to destroy them. Hi, I'm Robin, and today on Books That Burn, we don't have Nicole, but we have a special guest. Hi, I'm Anna, co-host of the Circle of Friendship podcast, where we focus on all things Tamara Pierce and Circle of Magic related. And today, we are discussing Battle Magic. So if you've been following along with our coverage of this series, we're doing one book for each of the four main kids. And today we're talking about Briar and also a little bit with Rose Thorne and Evie, but Briar's the one of the main kids we're focusing on this time. For our factions, we have Briar, Rose Thorne, Eve, Evie's cats, Luvo, Parahan, Sudamani, the God King, Emperor Weihan, First Dedicate Doki, Jiajui, uh, Diban Kangmo. So our first topic. So normally this would be the minor character spotlight. Rose Thorn isn't a minor character, but uh, she's the first one we're covering because we have less of her trauma specifically in this book, but more than we've gotten for her traumas uh, than in other books. We're discussing disability for Rose Thorne. Yeah, I think this is the first book where we have her perspective at all. So yep. we're seeing more of how things affect her as opposed to just how Briar perceives it. Oh, yeah. Because we also get how Briar thinks about her. Yeah. But getting to see her thoughts about Briar is really nice because it, it makes it really clear that like she's not just indulging his affection or something that like they both genuinely care for each other. And it's really nice to get to see that. It is. It also exacerbates uh, the, uh, the effects of her disability, how it emotionally impacts both of them, I think, because she's so, she's so frustrated by her inability to protect him the way that she once would. And he's constantly worrying about her health the whole time. And then whenever they do magic stuff, like it kind of flips, like, In this book, he finally has magic that's probably like 80% as good as hers. Like, it's hard to tell because we're not usually in a position anymore where the disparity between their magic gets highlighted because he is very, very powerful. Yeah. At this point, he's proven himself for years. So. Yeah. They're both very powerful. I think at this point, most of the gap there is from experience. But like, it, it means that because... So so to be clear about what her disability is, um, she temporarily died in one of the earlier books. And so the after effects of that are kind of the equivalent of someone who maybe had like a heart attack or a stroke. She has slower speech, tiredness and difficulty breathing. 
And they're traveling in the mountains, so that difficulty breathing thing comes up kind of a lot. Um, and it means that Briar's really, really protective of her and what he perceives her as genuinely having trouble with physically because she does genuinely have trouble. But like his occasionally slightly ableist um, reaction to that means that sometimes she has to shut him down and be like, no, stop it. I I am fine. I don't need you to take care of me like this. I literally just need my tea and it'll be fine. I I can do the things. It's fine. Yeah, he definitely comes at it from a perspective of wanting to prevent her from encountering any difficulties instead of letting her set the parameters of her boundaries and what she can and can't handle, which is not great. It's not great. He's also literally 16. Yeah, he's still so kind of a child. the story, right. So the story is a, in this book is about them getting to that balance and that better place. And one of the things in this book that helps that happen is she has a thing where she has to leave him to do a thing that literally only she can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and her disability doesn't stop her from doing this thing. And he calms down a lot more with regards to that in the book after this happens. But it's also possible that the reason he calmed down about that is because everything else got a whole lot worse, as we're going to talk about in his section. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then... She also has PTSD, and we're going ahead and leaving that under the umbrella of disability because it it is one. Yep. Um, whether or not an individual with PTSD considers themselves to be disabled, like it's kind of part of that umbrella. Um, and she has PTSD for earlier trauma from other books, including some unspecified abuse from her family, which involved her, um, it involved her being chained and used for her magic. And so because this is the first book from her perspective, we finally like get some like snippets of her having flashbacks to those. Mm -hmm. And we also, I think for the first time, unless it's been a while since I reread the other books, there might be, some mention of it, but I think it's the first time we get her name prior to joining the Order of the Living Circle and taking on the name Rosethorn. Ah, if I remember correctly, there might be one or two moments where like Lark calls her. Could be, yeah. the other name. It's been yeah. a while since I, like, I feel like Briar's book is the book I've read least out of all of the earlier Circle books. So mm-hmm. I've, if anything, I feel like it would have been revealed during that, but I have foggier memories of that one. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure we got it earlier okay. because I, to me, this is the one where I've only read this one twice, mm-hmm. and the first time I read it, I don't think it felt like a reveal. So again, because we're only reading four books out of this eleven book <laughs> series, uh, yeah, to to do this thing. Um, we're a little fuzzier on that. But yeah, like, we actually get her perspective here, which is really nice. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other things we want to mention. Um, she's in the minor character spot because everything else is going to get, like, a lot worse. <laughs> so she- yeah, she she gets to kind of skip out on some of the... I mean, she doesn't skip out on it. She definitely comes back and deals with it. But she doesn't have to be physically present for a lot of the worst stuff that happens because she's off with her own journey. And I'm I'm glad she gets that respite, but it's definitely hard for her to not have that control, I think. Yeah. 
And also, we don't get as many chapters in her perspective after some of the major stuff partway through the book happens. Mm-hmm. Um, because it focuses a lot more on Briar's reaction to news about what has happened. Yeah. On to Briar and death and loss. So... Connecting back to the previous section, at the beginning of the book, the main thing that's happening is Briar still is traumatized from when Rose Thorne temporarily died, and he's also trying really hard to help Evie with her stuff that we're going to talk about a little bit more in the next section. Um, Because, like, everyone in this book enters it with trauma. And Briar is like, he's he's really trying to like hold everybody together. I feel like with Briar, there's this sort of interesting thing about him where he had a lot of trauma earlier on in life, but I don't think that he fully felt it or viewed it as trauma partially because he was young and partially because it was just his reality. So I think the the effects of it has accumulated as he's gotten older and kind of looked back on it more as will happen if you have like very early trauma um and so what he would have brushed off in the beginning of his journey is now something that like is very painful for him understanding you know evie's perspective and where she comes from having lost rose having lost rose thorn after or potentially temporarily lost rose thorn after not having a mother and things for his whole life and it's really hard it like compounds on him a lot I mean, in, in Street Magic, there's there's a, a moment where Evie, you know, talking because his in his past he was in a he was in a gang from like ages four to like he was in it for like two or three years. He was like four to like ten because he's like ten when they find four to him. 10. Yeah, that's true. He went straight from that to um to the first book. Yeah, at age ten. So yeah, so he was in a gang from ages four to ten. And in Street Magic, there's a moment where, um, for reasons, Evie isn't in a gang. And he's like, you really should be in one because you'll get protection. And she's like, I want to fight all the time. And he's like, we didn't fight all the time. And then he counts it up and he's like, oh, no, it was like once We fought all the time. <laughs> so I, I, yes, absolutely. Uh, up until now, and even really still now, he... He's just kind of, like, setting all the trauma in, like, a little box to the side. Like, we're gonna deal with that later. Because there's always something mm-hmm. else that is more important than dealing with his reaction to what happened. Which then takes us to what happened in this book, where um, his reaction to thinking that Evie has died, or that Evie has died, is less important than killing everybody responsible for killing Evie. Yeah. And we want to make it very clear, this is not a book with major character death. Like, everybody dies. Like, a lot of people die. But not... There is animal death. There's named animal death. There's no named major human character death of characters we like. Yeah. But... People that we've been introduced to die, but no one that we've spent a significant amount of time with. Yeah, but it's a war... It's they're in the middle of the war. The body count is very, very high. Um, but so when he thinks that Evie is dead, 
he is ready to tear everything down. And because he's a plant mage, he's going to tear everything down by uh, seed balls of thorny plants that will literally tear everything down. (laughs) Yeah. And mobilizing any piece of wood and plant that he can find in this fairly harsh landscape. Yeah. Like, uh, like I, a trope that I really, really like is kind of like that moment right after a character finds out that something very terrible has happened to someone they love. And just like that moment of like grief and rage as it turns to action is just like really, really powerful. And the way that happens in this just it it has like that power and that pull and it's just really really well done in this one and also like we're going to talk about this in the wrap up but in terms of care from the author we never the the reader knows that Evie is alive mm-hmm. we find out what happened to her or we see what led up to her pretending to be dead and we know that she is alive and then we get Briar's reaction to everything tearing down or to wanting to tear everything down because he thinks she's dead. And I think that made it so that I think that made it more powerful because we aren't as stressed out yeah. in the same way that he is. And it means you can like more appreciate his reaction. Right. And it doesn't feel the need to, um, make us quote unquote feel what he's feeling by toying with the reader's emotions in order to understand Uh where he's coming from, because we know how much he loves her. We know how much stock that he puts in the people that he's cultivated as his family, given that everyone is a found family to him. And he's, we know the fact that Briar puts so much stock in his found family. We know that he has cultivated this careful group of people that he cares about around him and how much value he puts on them, given that he didn't have that foundation early in life. So we don't need to, as readers, wonder if Evie is alive in order to feel the rage and sorrow that Briar is feeling and understand where he's coming from. And I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we'll do this in the wrap up, but it it is so much care Mm -hmm. um, for the reader. And because I think... Because sometimes authors think that you can't understand if you aren't dragged through every single thing that the character goes to, goes through. And there's a lot of restraint here in some really important ways because, like, like, like you said, like, part of how we know this is so terrible and we understand his grief and rage is because we have seen how much he cares and therefore even if he shuts down and can't talk very much after she dies, that contrast to how he was before, before he thinks she has died, is part of what conveys how awful this is. So you you don't have him talking about his feelings and how upset he is. He just is upset. Yeah. I think it shows a lot of trust for the reader, and a great skill in like the character building because we understand how Briar operates. We know that he's a wisecracking little brat a lot of the time, mm-hmm. even if he's maturing throughout this book. So if he's not behaving that way, we understand the gravity of that situation. We don't need it spelled out for us, and we don't need it. Um, we don't need it to be like manipulated into our feelings 
because Tamara Pierce has done the work to build this incredibly well-rounded character and to build our relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And I think that also then leads to the helplessness and guilt part. Because we also Uh know how much he values being able to take action and be resourceful and um, handle the problems that are thrown at him. That's something he values very highly in himself because he did have to survive on his own for so long. And the fact that he didn't and couldn't do that in this situation is probably one of the most gut-wrenching things for him. Oh, yeah. Because, like, we start this series with him as... Briar, give me all of your knives. Yes. And also the other knife. And also the other knife. Because he just, he needs to be able to, he starts out needing to be able to fight back. And in the series, it transforms pretty quickly into needing to be able to protect the people he cares about. And yeah, just having this moment be that he, he didn't, protect her right he literally brought rosethorn back from the verge of death like that's how far he's willing to go for the people he loves Not even verge of death, of. in the lands of death basically yeah yeah he like she she did died die. and he was like no i love you so much i don't allow this And to be in a position where not only he can't do that for someone that he loves, but he can't do that for someone who trusted him to protect her and who he was Uh responsible for in a way that he's not responsible for an older adult. Probably the most traumatic thing for him. On to Evie and torture. And we're also going to talk a little bit about animal death. Um... If you have read this series and haven't read this book yet, like, this is a spoiler. Um, so, yeah, the cats die in this book. Just gonna say that up front. If you don't want to hear any more details, we understand. We'll catch you in the wrap-up. Um, so, the big thing with Evie in this book is that her previous trauma is amplifying her current trauma. And like, yeah, that's, that's how uh, trauma works. Mm-hmm. It doesn't like neatly stop. Um, and even if like things are better, if things become not good again, trauma responses are there to help you cope with things not being good. Uh, at least uh, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Evie loves these cats. And she judges people's character based on how they really act to her cats. Because she's 12. She's 12. And whether people are kind to animals is most of the time a reasonable proxy for character. Because she's 12. Yeah. And one of the things that happens is she gets tortured for information. And the person... Partway through being tortured, she finds out that the person who ordered the torture and told the people how to go about it um, is someone that she had trusted earlier and talked about her cats with. Someone who also has cats. Someone who would come specifically to hang out and pet her cats. Yep. And, like, she says, you know, oh, no, like, the emperor definitely wouldn't have told you to torture me because like he liked my cats too and gave me a cinnabar cat as a gift and the person's like who do you think told me to torture you it was definitely him and like 
Uh, the metaphor of giving someone a cat made out of a of a metal that is poisonous to hold, um, that's a lot. Like, yeah, that's that's some foreshadowing right there that I didn't pick up on in my first read through. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, I gave her a poisonous cat. This is gonna this is gonna turn out well. Um, because it's not like he was an extremely awesome person who then did this one weird thing. He's like definitely a terrible person who does this thing that looks kind of nice, but is also literally poison. Um, this is my second read through, so I don't remember exactly what I thought the first time. But I know that when it got to the reveal that she was going to be tortured and that he had been the one who ordered it, I was like, oh, yeah, the cat was poison. Uh-huh. Great. Makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, we've had fear of him built up starting in street magic because Evie was originally from um mm-hmm. Youngji. Saying that right? And um mm-hmm. and so she never trusted him. Like that's the one thing that's been drilled into her her whole life, even when she was still with her family, that this mm-hmm. guy is a snake. He is a very powerful snake. No offense to snakes. But in the metaphorical sense, and he will hurt you for what he wants because he considers himself to be a god. Um, But I think she still had trust in the people who worked for him because she's 12 and because she doesn't understand necessarily. She understands better than most 12-year-olds, but she doesn't understand on an inherent level that you can be kind to the people around you and still do very bad things, which we see so often in real life. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, like, I mean, briefly talking about how the way that plays out, like, if someone is literally terrible to absolutely everyone they meet, they're not going to have anyone who helps Mm -hmm. them out. Like, in order to successfully be terrible to more people, you have to be at least a little kind to some people or you have zero help and you get completely shut out. And yeah, that's... That's why so many abusers will then have people around them who are like, oh, but they were so great to me. Yep. Why are you having a problem? And it's like, well, because they were great to you. That's how that often Because they're not trying to hurt you. So, of course, they're not just being relentlessly terrible to you. You're not their intended target for pain. Like, Yeah. And it's... And also, so Evie's parents had sold her into slavery. Um, That's part of her backstory. And so when they did this thing to her and she doesn't trust them, but then they also were like, hey, this other person isn't great. I f- it feels like emotionally that would be a little bit of a mixed message because by the time she's at this point, she's like, well, you absolutely can't cross him and he's supposed to get like this many bows and touches and whatever. But she also has like enough of a like, kind of a distance from it where she's like, oh, his messenger disrespected this other person by not giving literally what they would have given the emperor. Like that Mm -hmm. kind of a moment. I'm sorry if that's a little twisty for anyone who hasn't read the book. It's this thing where she sees someone being paid like almost as much respect as the emperor would have gotten by one of the emperor's messengers and sees it as being disrespect and someone else points out, hey, maybe it's that this person got almost as much respect as the emperor. So it's probably actually trying to be respectful, maybe. Yeah. She just like, it's so hard for her because there's so much trauma on trauma and 
so much ingrained beliefs that aren't even from her own memories. Like everything with the emperor is just what her family taught her. She would never have any uh-huh. cause to cross paths with him. You know, she was they were not a wealthy family. Clearly, if they wound up selling their child um, to survive. Yeah. And so she just has all of this, she has all of this distrust, she has all of this fear, she views him as, she views him as almost godlike the way that he wants to be seen, because he is so far removed from her, that he's not necessarily a person until she meets him. Uh Uh-huh. And then he, every, he has so much influence that he can get people who were previously kind to do very bad things to her specifically. Yep. And- Speaking of her past um, having been enslaved, so she has a lot of abandonment issues because, uh, duh, Um, she mentions not being able to trust people because everyone leaves. Like, it's a big deal that, like, Rose Rose Thorne and Briar can leave her site and she trusts that they'll come back. Like, that's a huge deal. And then there's a character, Parahan, who is enslaved when they meet him. And she refuses to leave him in slavery because she remembers being enslaved. And so even though in this book, we only get hints of how bad it is for him, um, because he is uh, relentlessly upbeat about it, because he is obviously not allowed to talk about how much being enslaved is terrible. Um <laughs> If if you had gone just based off of what you see him do in the book, it would be easy to think, well, this must not be so bad. It's just like being a servant, but having like weird obligatory uh, jewelry, um, by which I mean chains. But then it she understands and doesn't need anyone to explain to her how bad this is. Yeah, she doesn't really let him hide behind his coping mechanisms of being upbeat to keep himself through the day she's just like this is terrible what why Mm -hmm. is this happening this is awful and he's like no uh it is it is great there is no war in ba sang say everything is fine (laughs) and she's like uh no you you sleep in a cage no this is not good and it it upsets her to the right it's it upsets her to the point where She's willing to risk everything, her lives, Briar's life, uh-huh. Rose Thorne's life, to help free this this person that she's befriended because she cannot, in good conscience, leave him to suffer that fate that she has – she didn't – she got, you know, a small taste of comparatively and it wasn't for someone as sadistic as this emperor as far as we know, but she's just not – she's not willing to – compromise on that moral high ground which good for her yeah and then that sets up the reason why someone wanted to torture her in the first place because the information they were trying to get was the whereabouts of parahan who she'd set free and they don't know specifically that she set him free they probably assumed that rose thorn or briar did it but they're looking for rose thorn briar parahan and then evie and when they find her, they torture her. Um, uh, content warning for bra- very brief descriptions of what kinds of torture it was. Um, she was stripped naked. Her feet were whipped. The book does not have any descriptions of sexual assault, and we don't have any reason to think that that would happen um, in, Tamora, in Tamara Pierce's writing. 
Um, like that's just like not been a thing. And this in terms of like reader care, uh, I'm very glad about that. Uh, and then she tries to use her stone magic to kind of emotionally get away and magically retreat. Um, but it keeps getting interrupted every time they whip her feet. And then the tipping point is when they threaten to kill her cats. She flees her body, pretends to be dead. And then when she wakes up, she finds out that they have killed the cats anyway, because they're terrible and monstrous. And yeah, so that's what happened to her. Right. Like many, like many empires, they don't just believe in the physical subjugation and torment of people. They also want to inflict psychological damage, mm-hmm. both while she is alive and then on the, like on the, um, community as a whole by showing, look, no one was spared. So even though they believe that she is dead, they still kill everyone around her, including her cats, because they want everyone to know this will happen I, to you, basically. And then she wakes up and deals with that. And I don't remember if, if she was in a fort or a temple before this, but whichever type of location it was, they killed Everyone. She was in a fort. They killed all the people. Yeah. yeah. They killed all the people in the fort. They killed all the animals, like, including the cats. Um, the refugees that had fled there. Yeah. The villagers who lived there and supported the fort um, and made sure that there was, like, food and servants and whatnot to keep it running. Literally everyone. Yeah. So any named character, like, the book doesn't, like, go through this and explicitly say all of it, but implicitly anyone we met while they were at the fort, except for the people who left with Rose Thorn and Briar, are dead yeah. at the end of this. Um, and, sh- and it's a war, and a lot of other people die too. And she also, I don't think that she necessarily has guilt over this, but prior to the invasion, like almost immediately prior, she noticed that the fort did not seem particularly secure or as secure as it could be, and she was trying to shore it up, and they rushed her aside and said, no, you're just a student mage. You don't know our what you're talking totally about. fine. Everything's great. And so our walls are fine. Yeah. Well, even though you see cracks in the plaster everywhere, it's fine. We've got this. We have mages. And I would say for her, it's not so much con- that it leads to guilt and helplessness the way it does with Briar, but it definitely leads to some rage of, well, fine. Now I'll show you what I can do. Yeah. I don't mean to harp on the cats. It just the book keeps coming back to that and kind of uses the fact that all the cats were killed as kind of a shorthand for everyone else who died too. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's a kind of understanding that, all right, we hate this other army, but we understand why they killed soldiers. We hate this other army, but we understand why they would kill the priests and mages. But they killed civilians. They killed civilians' animals. And kind of like going that far down on like the rung of like helplessness and who who signed up for being in a war. Mm-hmm. Um, mentioning that the cats died serves kind of as a shorthand for all of that. That way they don't have to like list over and over that everybody's dead. Cause like that would have, that wouldn't have been good writing either. Right. 
Like, it would have felt like some weird, like, litany. Um, but just, just mentioning that throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, just, it just becomes this, this emblematic thing. I also think- To show how terrible this emperor is. Yeah. I also think it's something where, as people who live in a world where human death occurs, and where war occurs and atrocities occur, when you hear that, you kind of become numb to it as a, like, emotional impact. You have to in order to keep existing and living because our real world is very painful and full of bad things. But animal death, especially animal death of pets, hits so close to home, and that's something Tamara Pierce knows. She loves putting pets in her books. And so choosing to use that as the shorthand, um, not like not just the horses, which okay, they are implements of war, even though they are also animals, but like the 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 cats, what could cats pose as a threat to this army? Nothing is a really good way to make the emotional impact stick without being gratuitous about it. Yeah. Like the the cats dying happened between scenes. Um, and I still had to stop reading the first time I read it and like sit and hug my cat for 15 minutes. So speaking of after effects, just like really briefly, we talked about how Briar reacts to finding this out that this thinking that she's dead and then finding out what actually happened. Um, I, I do want and we'll say it in the wrap up, but I do want to mention that there is the beginnings of aftercare in this book. Um, there's resolute. And I, I, I don't normally take the time to mention this, but I think in a book that is so dark, it's important for me to just say there is aftercare. There is a resolution. And, um, the the PTSD that that she clearly gets for what happened to her, like Briar specifically notices, I think Rose Thorne does too, and like books set after this start to deal with what happened. Also, like the publishing order for this one is weird. We're talking about it here because I think that's the best place in the order in which to read it. But it it was published after we have already read other book after we already are other books where they have mentioned that they were in a war and that she was tortured and like a little bit of the way she was tortured. So I don't know, the aftercare balance is odd because we get a little bit of it here, but then some of it is also in Melting Stones mm-hmm. for Eden, for Evie and in um The Will of the Empress for Briar. Uh, which is what we're going to read next. On to the wrap-up and ratings for our gratuity rating for disability. What do you think? Um, I would maybe go with moderate on this one from Rosethorn's perspective, because I don't know that it... We don't see so much of her being hindered and frustrated by it and being as affected by it as Briar, but I could also be um, swayed to severe. Um, so I 
I was actually going to go with mild because it's so in previous books, um, in previous books, this particular bundle of disabilities was more severe because it was closer to the event that caused them. Mm -hmm. And in comparison to that, this is less than that. So it's either still moderate, but a different kind of moderate or I think it's mild. It's like we're we're aware that these are things and there's a lot of talk about how they have affected her. Yeah. Oh wait, but we in- we included the dis- we included the PTSD as part of the disability. Yeah. Okay, so I think okay, I agree with your assessment of moderate with PTSD bundled into the disability. Yeah, I think that it's something that affects her but it's not something that like is constantly pressing on her yeah so with with the with the gratuity rating it's like the way it's described yeah so it might be obvious that it's affecting the character a lot but if the descriptions are not explicit Mm -hmm. then it could still be mild even though yeah like if you just ever once in a while say someone is in a lot of pain, but like there's no description that could be mild, even though it's like really bad for the actual character. So that's kind of the point of this rating. Um, Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say moderate for this one. I think it's something that, you know, that we, we see it affecting her and we're aware of how present it is, but I don't think that it's something that is in your face constantly. For the uh, death and loss um, I, I'm debating between moderate and severe because, so to be clear, this book is about a war and we are aware that a lot of people die, like a lot. But weirdly for me, the thing I think that kicks it up to severe is something we didn't talk about as specifically in the main section, which is... The descriptions of enemy deaths tend to be explicit. Mm -hmm. And the descriptions of characters that we like tend not to be explicit. Um, Descriptions of pain and death for um, those characters. Um, Like there is a particular massacre um, that happens completely off screen. But enemy deaths, we learn exactly how they died. And so not the exact thing we discussed in our main section, but other deaths in the book are absolutely severe, but also they're not played as something we're supposed to enjoy, really. No. So it definitely stays shy of the level of being torture porn. Right. The characters don't, even when they are inflicting death on someone who has harmed them and who is an enemy, they never enjoy it. And we are never led to enjoy it. So I would say I agree with like severe. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, torture. Um, it is severe. And it is not torture porn. Because again, there is zero flowery description. Like, I don't know what the best way to say this. It's very someone is literally being tortured, but it is as stripped down as possible bad turn of phrase um as minimalistic as possible to convey the horror of what's happening it is not meant to be um 
it's not meant to be anything enjoyable for the reader in any way. I would almost say it's written as, in many ways, dissociative. The yes. way that the way that it is very severe trauma, but the way that mm-hmm. you would experience such trauma if you were going through it, and it's not a pleasant and and enjoyable thing. It's not something that lends itself in any way, shape, or form to enjoyment. That sort of like yes, you're aware of what's happening, but you're also detached from it a little bit is how I would say it's portrayed in the book. And so that's why I think it's severe and not torture porn because it doesn't, it puts you in the position of a character, but it doesn't put you in this like, yes, let's go into every gory detail. Right. And also the character is magically disassociating. Mm -hmm. So I definitely agree. Yeah, it's, it is severe. We know exactly what happened and exactly how they were hurt. But yeah, it just walks this really fine line of we know exactly what happened, but the descriptions are as minimal as they could possibly be to still convey yeah. it. Um, for integral, interchangeable, or irrelevant, how tied to the story is the trauma? So for disability... Um, I would maybe say interchangeable there, only in that there could be mm-hmm. something else that serves a similar purpose. It's yeah. obvi- so it's integral in the arc of the story because it happened in previous books, but to this particular book, it's not. That is what I was going to say. It would be an abrupt uh, series change if all of a sudden this ongoing disability were not a thing anymore. But if this book had been written as a standalone, it would be interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Death and loss, it, it's integral to the plot. It's, I think we discussed this in the last one we talked about, or maybe the first one, but it's one of those things that is the basis of this entire series. This mm-hmm. concept of like love and loss and finding the people that you care about and how you deal with bad things happening. I don't think that that, that this series and this book in particular would be the same without it. And the particular um, deaths and losses that happen. While maybe it's like the ones that I could think maybe were interchangeable were all like mostly unnamed secondary characters anyway. So like, oh, sure, it could be a different unnamed secondary character. But like the important thing is that this scale of mass death is happening because, again, literally a war. Right. You can't write a book about a war without people dying and you can't write a book about characters you care about being in war without the potential and the fear of the people they're close to dying. Yeah. And loss of various kinds, mm-hmm. places, possessions, etc. Yeah, it's yeah, totally integral. Um, the torture. I think I have to say integral for that too. I think that a book that portrays war as horrible, but doesn't show that horror hitting close to home would not be as effective. I don't think this is true. I But so I think in general, it is a stronger book because it addressed that aspect of war, especially in, especially from an author who, at least in this series, like doesn't have any portrayals of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. You need something that conveys that war is a kind of horror that is more than just people dying because there are non-war contexts for people dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think having there be torture does serve that. 
But in terms of how it affected the characters and the plot, given that part of what happens is we think a character has died, if they had just thought she died, but she hadn't had been tortured, would could it have been swapped out with some other thing? I think for some of the characters, yes, but I don't think for this character. Okay. I don't think for right, that then. character that their journey would have been the same. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm good with saying integral. I just wanted to double check that. Now, how was the trauma treated? Was it treated with care in voice, language, phrasing, etc.? So I, so like, I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast previously, I don't know if you know, specifically, since you're a guest, um, I had a concussion in 2019. Okay. And, um, so as someone who had a brain thing that uh, affected my speech for a while, and I think it's mostly gone, um, that made uh, this, the disability for this character uh, <laughs> suddenly hit a little bit closer. And even with that, I feel like this disability, this portrayal of disability had enough care. Yeah. Because even though I have bits of exactly what they have, it was still, it was still, like, fine to read. It's very, like, matter of fact of, like, this is what happened. This is how it is affecting me. Yeah. Like. I can see that. I also mm -hmm. think it's not ever used in a way that's dehumanizing. And that shows a level of care as well. That this is just the character's mm -hmm. reality. And they're not lesser for it or anything like that. And I think there's a pretty good balance between showing the ableist reactions that some people do have and her saying, like, no, like, yeah, let's deal with the, the ways that it literally impacts me, but, but not letting it affect her life beyond those very specific things. Mm -hmm. Like she needs certain things in order to get to a good baseline, but she doesn't need to be coddled beyond that baseline. Yeah. If that makes sense. I agree with that. Uh, as to death and loss. Um, I think, so this is, this is a tricky one. Um, for me, I, what oh, with the, so with the general death and loss, I would say maybe enough. With the specific fears, the, the specific loss or perceived loss of main characters and characters close to them, I would also, I would actually also say enough or maybe care. This is something that hits pretty close to home for me um, with loss of loved ones and the trauma that that brings. And it's not, the, in this particular book, I didn't find it overwhelmingly triggering. So I find it, I find it difficult when it's used as a plot point with no real um, motive other than being edgy uh, or driving a plot forward if it doesn't have like an emotional reason to be there. But I think that in this case, it, it fit and it didn't particularly trigger me. Okay. So overall, like enough I would say enough. Like I, I can't. I don't know that I can say fully care just because, like, yeah, it's a book about war and there's going to be death, and that's really difficult to read if you've if you've even been through anything 
remotely similar to losing or being afraid of losing um, people in various circumstances. But yeah, with a topic like this, there hits a point where if you don't say enough about it, you have now not done enough care by trying to not say much. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with enough. I guess like your mileage may vary on it is another thing that comes down to it. Like it is a traumatic subject, but this is something that especially like death of people close to you is something and death of children is something that hits very close to home for me. Um, Uh and I, it's something that I've found triggering in other properties when I feel it's used cavalierly or just because like it's an it's a plot point that can like drive something forward and in this case I felt like it was all handled quite well so yes and it also cares very much about how being in this situation affects everybody whether or not they survive it and so there's a lot of emphasis on what being in war does to somebody and not very many uh, depictions of specific people dying, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like that, I think that balance was handled pretty well. And it definitely feels like something like the author was absolutely doing on purpose. Like it's not. Oh, yeah. Does not feel like an accident. No, I mean, it, the book um, is literally dedicated to veterans. So. Yeah. All right. As for torture, I think enough yeah but if you have specific triggers related to descriptions of dissociation then that would be a very related thing it's one of those where like you can either have enough care about the torture and not enough about dissociation or enough care about dissociation and not enough care about torture Mm -hmm. and i think this went on the side of enough care about torture and not enough about dissociation because kind of because of the way this book went with it, you had to kind of have one or the other and you can't do them both Yeah, in a way that's filled with care. And of the two, this is the balance I prefer. Mm -hmm. But again, your mileage may vary. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, I think that the, most caring way to portray something that is as horrific as torture is to focus more on the dissociation. But if the dissociation is something that triggers you, then that's something to be aware of going into it. Yep. All right. So our point of view for trauma and aftermath, because we rotate through these characters as narrators, generally we get someone's perspective while the trauma is actually happening to them. And then we get other people's perspective on the aftermath, including when the trauma that happens to somebody is that they think something bad has happened to somebody else or learn that something bad has happened to somebody else. Yeah, that's, it's an, I mean, we've always had rotating narrators in this book series in general, but this is the first time we've gotten this particular array of like, teacher, original student, youngest student, and gotten everyone who's like closest to this main character's perspective. So we wind up getting all of their points of view on what has happened or what they think has happened. And then, you know, the same for the aftermath, since it rotates narrators all the way through. Yeah. All right, on to hopefully slightly happier things. Uh, Do you have an aspiring writer tip? Ooh, I 
would say that this book is a fairly good example of how to handle very traumatic material with care. And so I, my mm-hmm. inspiring writer tip would be to, to treat your characters and your readers with compassion, regardless of the situations that they wind up in due to your plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you have any kind of like concrete, actionable way to express that? If you don't, that's fine. Um, Like what to you helped make it have that care that you think could successfully happen in other books to give that care? I think that in particular, especially in this book, both the characters and the reader were treated as human beings with very, um, with very real and difficult baggage and responses. And I think a lot, instead of treating the characters as like playthings or something to drive the plot forward, treating them as people and thinking about it in that way and how that would make you feel and and how that helps you become a better writer. It it, it allows you to create better stories, even when those stories involve something terrible happening. Yep. Cool. Uh, All right. A favorite non-traumatic thing about the book. Trying to think what mine would be. Oh, I know what mine is. All right, you go because I'm thinking Um, of mine. Mine is uh, all the cave creatures. Yes. Like uh, the cave spider. Like, we made sure to put uh, her name in here, uh, D-Ban Kangmo. Uh, like, I love I love the spiders and little, like, cave snakes. Like, and I understand uh, if, if me listing spiders and snakes is not a non-traumatic thing for you, they aren't in the book a lot. And don't worry, other people in the book are not uniformly <laughs> excited to uh, see uh, snakes and spiders. I really enjoyed that in there it's also not so overwhelming that you might need to avoid it and now i feel weird about having picked snakes and spiders as my non-traumatic thing but i I love them they're so good they're like weird magical snakes and spiders they're so cool (laughs) yeah and it's all about how even though they look scary they are fine and you don't need to be afraid of them and it's great so right there's also like foxes and snow leopards and yaks and other cool mountainy creatures so yeah oh yeah there's mammals yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you we, we've all got our array of like cool weird yeah. magical mountain creatures to choose from so my favorite non-traumatic thing about the book the thing that stuck with me the most when i read this book apart from the trauma was the compassionate portrayal of the range of sexual orientation and things like polyamory mm-hmm. in among the characters and how it's just kind of casually talked about as if it's normal mm-hmm. because it is. Right. And I really like that. It's something that you don't see a lot in books or if you do, it's, it's um, a big thing is made out of it. And I have some books I want to point you to. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, and it's, it's not even necessarily about representation for me personally, but it's about the fact that it exists and it's there. And you I know- think that's really cool. And like as something where the early the earlier books in this series, like you could absolutely read it as queer, but I, I think it wasn't until these later books that were published when it was more okay socially to just say, Hey, this is queer and it's fine. I think I I appreciate that the author went ahead and said, oh, no, this is queer. Yes. 
and this is a poly thing. And like they made it canon and not just something for fans to read in. Um, right. It's it's that it I was wish it had been canon earlier, but you know, I'm really glad right. that this makes it specific. Well it I, one thing that she actually has said is that earlier she kind of fell into that mm, kind of problematic headspace where it's I don't have to mention it because it's not crucial to the story. That's never applied right. to like monogamous heterosexual relationships ever. It'll get mentioned no matter what. And she said right. specifically that hearing from readers that things that they were maybe reading into the story that she in- intended for them to read in but weren't explicitly laid out was frustrating and felt like a lack of representation and she adjusted. And so I really appreciate yeah. that aspect, that ability to learn and grow and say, oh, this is actually important mm-hmm. for me to mention and it matter. And it does matter to the story even if it doesn't matter to the plot. And you oh, see yeah. that continuing in her later books and I like that, so... All right. So thank you so much for joining us. And you can catch us in a fortnight for the fourth book of our little uh, survey of the Emmeline books by Tamara Pierce. And that will be The Will of the Empress. So we are going to get uh, Daja's. Uh, we're going to focus on Daja in that one, which is exciting. Going to wrap this up there. Uh, if you want to plug your pluggables. Sure. So I, as I mentioned before, co-host the Circle of Friendship podcast where we deep dive on the MLN series. You can find us at certainpov.com, wherever you find your podcasts. You can look us up. And we're on Twitter at COFpod. Um, you can find me personally at Anna Lionhearted. On Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, whatever social media platforms I happen to be on. (laughs) And I post there sporadically. Excellent. So thank you so much for joining us. And everyone, we will catch you in a fortnight. All music used in this podcast was created by Nicole as Heartbeat Art Co. and is used with permission. You can follow us on Twitter at Books That Burn, all one word. You can email us with questions, comments, or book recommendations at booksthatburn at yahoo.com. Support us on patreon.com slash booksthatburn. All patrons get access to our upcoming book list and receive a one-time shout out. You can leave us an iTunes review. This helps people to find the show. And find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.